was a month of December, and in homes all around, not a thing wasn't stirring. Busy chaos abounds. Demeanors of brashness flowed free without care in hopes that the other would treat them more fair. Whether in line or a meeting or digital post, angry comments and likes from those followed the most. When what to my world-wearied heart should appear but the kindness of Christmas, bringing love far and near. On Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday the same, be it listening or time spent, fan empathy's flame. To the day you grow old, from the day you can crawl, give away, give away kindness to all. The author is writing, his kindness so cheery, its power to wake and bring light to the weary. But lo, we must listen, and with him so exclaim, Merry kindness to all. Now to all show the same. The year is 1919, and it will always be remembered as perhaps the greatest scandal in the history of baseball. Maybe you know the story. It was called the Black Sox Scandal. And uh, it was referenced that way because eight of the Chicago White Sox players accepted bribes to throw the World Series to the Cincinnati Reds, and they did, and the Reds won. Can you imagine how infuriated fans were across the country for what those players had done? They had sabotaged their own team, all in order to line their pockets with some money. All of us have experienced sabotage in our lives, and those who do that, known as saboteurs, maybe it's happened in your family, maybe it's happened at work, maybe it's happened in the neighborhood, maybe it's happened amongst your friends. Somebody that you thought was your ally that was with you actually behaved more like your enemy. Somebody that you thought would always be loyal became disloyal. And all of us know to some degree that pain and that difficulty. But what you may not realize is that the greatest saboteur you ever have to deal with, the greatest enemy, is oftentimes ourselves. Welcome back to our Christmas series, A Different Kind of Christmas. And in this series, we have been talking about the power of kindness. Last weekend, we talked about the fashion of kindness, you know, wearing it, practicing kindness. And I hope, I hope you really took that to heart uh, this past week. And, you know, I kind of challenged you and I said, if you want to find out how kind you are, go out there and try your best not to say anything unkind. And ask somebody to hold you accountable. I've had a few people tell me that uh, their kids held them accountable. And rather quickly, they were reminded of some things that they said that were not kind. It's hard to be kind, isn't it? Well, this weekend, I want to talk about what makes it so hard. It's not what's on the outside of us. It's what's going on on the inside of us. I want to talk about the saboteurs that all of us have to deal with internally. And then we're going to look at 
how to overcome those. So the big idea that we're approaching this weekend's message with is simply this. And that is knowing and identifying the internal saboteurs of your soul is what will help you and me defeat their efforts and then allow us to grow and experience the power and lifestyle of being kind. That's quite a promise, isn't it? Because I tell you what, if you've ever been on the receiving end of kindness, you know how powerful that is. So just imagine yourself being this person who's constantly bestowing kindness on people who are around you. Now here's what I want to do. It's the Christmas season. We're talking about kindness. And I want us to look at somebody who I think is probably the kindest person in the Bible outside of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the person I'm talking about is Joseph, the foster father of Jesus, the husband of Mary. You know, this guy suddenly appears on the pages of Scripture, and just as quickly he's gone, and we're hardly told anything about him. In fact, if you read the passages carefully, he doesn't really say anything. And yet, his actions are so profound, they truly speak louder than if he had used words. So he's going to be kind of the model we look at for learning how to overcome the internal saboteurs that we face. Let's jump right in, whether you're at Edina or Loring Park, or whether you're joining us from your home, your apartment, wherever you might be, or at one of our venues at uh, Eden Prairie. Let's look at the first saboteur, and here he is, all right? Kindness saboteur number one, it's too hard. Now, even if you're alone right now watching this, I, I want you to say that phrase, it's too hard, like you say it when something seems really hard. Ready? One, two, three. It's too hard. Yeah. You probably have heard that uh, if you have kids. But I'm guessing even as an adult you have said that. I know I have. And sometimes, let's just be honest with each other, sometimes it is hard to be kind. It really is. Especially when you're facing adverse circumstances. I mean, imagine Joseph, Right? His wife's been away for, that he's engaged to, has been away for about three months visiting her cousin Elizabeth. And she comes back and she unloads on him and says, I'm pregnant and God is the father. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be really hard to take. In fact, I was doing some research and I discovered that uh, through some research that others have done that one out of every 100 pregnant unwed women will say that they have no idea how they got pregnant. Kind of like catching a cold. It just happened. You talk about being in denial, right? So imagine poor Joseph trying to deal with this. And even if he believes what Mary is telling him, I mean, the idea now of, of marrying her and and dealing with all the fallout that's going to go with this? I mean, you can imagine Joseph saying, Mary, I, I believe you, but this is just too hard. Or I, I can imagine, you know, Joseph saying to the angel, and we'll read the passage uh, soon, uh, Mr. Angel, this is just too hard. Please ask God to, to bring somebody else into the picture, not me. Let me ask you a question. Who or what is just too hard for you right now? I remember when I first started in the ministry, I was pastoring a very small church in uh, Ohio. And uh, uh, we had a, a lady in our church, I'm going to call her Mrs. R, okay? 
as she was our organist, but she was also the church boss. And what I mean by that is she kind of been there the longest, and her family had been part of that church forever, and uh, you pretty much didn't do anything unless you got permission from her. Well, I came there to help the church, you know, reach people for Christ and grow, and we need to make certain changes for that to happen. And I guess I've been making too many changes, and the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back is when I took the three chairs that were behind the pulpit, I pushed them out and to the side, and I moved three new chairs that actually looked so much better and made it much more warm in the building and just gave a better sense of uh, unity in the congregation because it wasn't like, you know, I'm the Pope sitting way back here. And I tell you what, you would have thought that I had just kidnapped her child. It was the last straw. And so she became very passive aggressive. She was our organist, and the organ faced out toward the congregation. And she just started playing with kind of a meanness, you know, like joyful, joyful, we adore thee. But there was no joy. It was like the mad scientist on the keyboard. And I just thought to myself, this is just too hard. I, I can't deal with this Sunday after Sunday. And, and, it's, and it's having an effect on the rest of our small little congregation. What am I going to do about this? And God said something to me. And it solved the whole situation. Would you like to know what it is? I'll tell it to you in a few minutes, all right? Let's look at uh, saboteur number two. I'm too exasperated, all right? Now, I want you to say that like you're exasperated. It's kind of fun, isn't it? All right, so Edina, Lori Park, wherever you are right now, let's say it together, ready? I'm too exasperated. Now, you may not have ever used the word exasperated, but I'm sure you said some things that are very similar in their meaning to what that means. To be exasperated is to be annoyed. It is to be, you know, just completely sick and tired of some situation, feeling like you've been pushed to the edge. Have you been exasperated the last couple of years with COVID and all the things that are going on in our culture and our society? Can you imagine how exasperated poor Joseph must have been or become? I mean, if I put myself in his place, and my fiance tells me she's pregnant and God is the father. And finally I, I go, okay, whatever. Now I'm going to take her as my wife. And I'm going to have all these rumors and gossips in, uh, in Nazareth talking about us and what really happened. And then, I gotta, and then I find out from you know Rome, I've got to go all the way down to Bethlehem and uh, do this census. And who's going to watch my shop? And how am I going to take care of my money? And I've got this nine-month pregnant woman with me that i got to take her on this journey. Oh, my goodness. How easy it would have been for Joseph to be absolutely exasperated with what he was being asked to do. I remember years ago when I was ministering in California I was out running our dog. We had this beautiful black lab, and man, could he run. And so I had been through a particular difficult time of, of ministry and uh, had a lot of challenges that I was working through. And I went for this run out in this park up this really long, steep slope. And there were signs all over the place, and the signs simply said, keep all animals on leash. Well, I had my dog on leash, and we're, you know, we're grinding away up that steep slope, and all of a sudden coming down is another runner with their dog off leash. Well, as we crossed, their dog attacked my dog. And I got to tell you something, it was, it was the last straw for me. I mean, as we pulled our dogs apart, I gave this guy 
a piece of my mind. I mean, I unleashed because it was like, I can't take this anymore. I can't even go in the wilderness for a run. And I got to deal with people who can't manage themselves. So I finished my run and I got to the top of the hill finally. And I just stood there. And I got to tell you what, I felt so, I just felt so ashamed at how I behaved and what I said, and I felt so guilty about it. And to make matters worse, it was Saturday. Sunday was coming. I'm going to have to stand in front of the congregation and preach about God's love. And to top it all off, it's communion Sunday. And I just felt like I don't want to go. This is, you know, I've just, I've just blown it. Maybe you've had that same experience uh, in your life recently where, you know, at home or at work with all the pressure, all the things that are going on, you just, you know, you've just kind of fallen apart. You've just totally exasperated. Well, God did something that Sunday when I had to stand in front of the congregation and serve them the elements of communion. And I'll tell you what he did in just a couple minutes, all right? So let's look at uh, Sabbatur number three. Sabbatur number three, sarcasm and muttering. Sarcasm and muttering. Now, before we go any further, um, I, I love quick wit. I love quick comebacks. Uh, I like jousting with friends. I, I'm not down on that, but you know, sarcasm kind of walks a very thin line. And when it, when it crosses over to putting somebody down and making them feel bad or making fun of them or having fun at their expense, it's wrong. It's wrong. And a lot of sarcasm today that we hear in the media, and unfortunately a lot of sarcasm that we speak in our homes and amongst our, you know, our friends, honestly, it's not healthy. It's not good. It's not uplifting. It, it ends up being hurtful. And I've shared with you before, I just don't buy that saying that says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I tell you what, names, all right, talking down about each other can be so incredibly painful. Can you imagine how sarcastic Joseph could have been through that whole experience that he was dealing with? I mean, can't you imagine looking at Mary at first and just, you know, maybe sarcastically saying, so, God's the, God's the father, huh? I wonder what you're really doing down there, quote, with Elizabeth for three months. God must be good looking. Did you guys have too many drinks? Oof, that'd be sarcastic. Or can you imagine him, you know, leading Mary down to Bethlehem and, you know, they're, they're on their way and he's struggling and finally he just says, I don't understand we had to pack so much crap. We're not moving there for the rest of our lives. You say, I can't believe you said that. But aren't those the kinds of things we say sometimes when we're just exasperated and sarcastic? Or he could have muttered. Well, by the way, what does muttering mean? I, I thought I'd look that up. Here's what it means. To utter words indistinctly or in a low tone, often as if talking to oneself, murmur. To complain, murmuringly, grumble. To make a low, rumbling sound. How many of you have ever murmured today? <laughs> You know, we struggle with that, don't we? You know, murmuring, I, I look at murmuring as this way that we kind of verbalize, I'll do this, but we let people know how aggravated we are and how upset we are. And we think we're being quiet enough so they can't hear us, but actually we're being kind of loud enough so they can hear us. Can you imagine poor Joseph, how he could have murmured his whole life through? What have you been murmuring about lately? What's going on in your life, in your family, in your job that just has you kind of walking around murmuring and grumbling and, you know, kind of letting people know you're unhappy and upset. I mean, that is a killer of kindness if there ever was one. All right, let's look at one more kindness saboteur. 
catastrophizing, catastrophizing. I mean, you know, Joseph could have just said, oh, that's it. There's no more hope for us. We're never going to have a great marriage. Oh, I'm going to lose my business. Wait till work gets around town. They'll never show up to my shop again. But I will probably end up going to Bethlehem and being robbed. I'll probably be killed. Maybe that'd be better for me. I mean, he could have gone on and on and on, couldn't he? Does that ever happen to you? Are you married to a catastrophizer? <laughs> Do you have one in your home? Do you ever just get so exasperated, so upset, so discouraged that you just, you know, it's, it's, it's Eeyore, right? Gloom and doom. There's no more hope. It's just all over. We're done with things. Wow. When you allow yourself to catastrophize a situation, when you go and see the worst in it, you'll never, never be able to live out that life of kindness. And, you know, for some of us, uh, catastrophizing is, is, is an issue. Maybe it's how we grew up, all right? Or maybe it's the environment we were uh, exposed to, and so we kind of fall into that trap. All right, let's look at one more. Here we go. Kind of saboteur number five, suspicion. Suspicion. Now, I understand that sometimes when people hurt us or betray us and break our trust, that it's hard to get that trust back again. And there's a period of time, you know, when there might be a sense of suspicion, whether it's, you know, between spouses or, you know, parents and their kids or with your friends or with your coworkers. I get that. But listen, you know, when there's repentance and when there's a desire to reconcile, you've got to eventually lay suspicion aside because suspicion will prevent you from ever being kind because it puts you in a very defensive and a very negative mindset and your mind is always going to tend to go towards something pretty bad because you are now so suspicious. Can you imagine how suspicious Joseph could have been? Yeah, what were you really doing with down there for those three months? You didn't see Elizabeth, did you? Who did you really see? Hey, Mary, I saw you looking at that guy kind of longingly. Um, something going on with that one? Is that what's taking place here? Hey, you seem awfully friendly with that person. What's that all about? I mean, he could have gone on and on and just drove her over the edge with suspicion. And sometimes we, you know, we do that with each other. And I guess what I would say is if you're struggling with that because there's been a mistrust in the relationship, just be honest enough with your friend, your loved one, or your kid, or your parents, your spouse, and simply say, look, I, I see you improving in so many ways. I love you. I love our relationship. I care about you. I'm struggling right now. It's my issue. But I just, just for my sake, can I just share with you what I'm, what I'm struggling with and help me with this? See, that's a kind way. That's an inviting way of saying, look, I, I want to get past this. This is nagging at me. Can I just ask you this question? And, and then getting that reassurance and growing that relationship. Well, we've looked at, at several saboteurs now. I wonder which one of those you are uh, struggling with the most. And how do we now overcome them? How do we, how do we have victory so that kindness has a clear pathway through our lives? Well, this is where I want to take a closer look at Joseph. So let's look at the passage of Scripture. It's found in Matthew chapter 1, and it begins at verse 18. It says, This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophets. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. I love Joseph. Honestly, I think he's the kindest man outside of our Lord Jesus. I think he's the kindest man in Scripture. And I just want to point out three characteristics that I see in Joseph that, that allowed him to be kind and express kindness, and I think that allowed him to overcome the saboteurs, the the things that he would have probably battled with like you and I would have battled with. And here's the first one. Joseph always, from what I can see in the passage, always sought to do what was right, look at this, in the right way. Now that's important because you can know what the right thing is to do, but you can do it the wrong way. And I'll show you what I mean in just a moment. Joseph always sought to do what was right in the right way. In the passage of Scripture, it says that Joseph was a righteous man. And what that literally means is that Joseph wanted to have God's word, the law, the prophets, whatever scriptures they had, he wanted that to be his compass and his guide in life. It formed his whole world view. And he refused to you know, go to the left of it or go to the right of it. He was going to walk and let the word of God govern his life. That trumped everything else. I admire that. In your life and my life, we need an anchor point as well. We need something that's going to serve as our compass through life. And my question to you would be, what is your compass in life? What sets the direction for you? What is the final authority in your life? For me, it is God and his word, because I trust God and his word. I believe his word to be truth. However, having said that, Joseph knew how dangerous a situation this was for Mary until the angel appears to him and tells him what's really going on here. He wants to divorce her quietly, gently. The reason he wants to do that is because if he takes her public, there will be those all right, who are legalists, who are very self-righteous like the Pharisees, who will go and grab a scripture out of the law and want to stone her because they want to do the right thing, but they don't want to do it the right way. Joseph must have known a passage like this one in the book of um, Exodus where it describes God. It says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord The Lord, a God, what? Merciful and what? Gracious, slow to anger and 
abounding in steadfast love. This is the God of the Old Testament, who is the God of today, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, what I want you to see there is this holy tension that exists between God's love and compassion and tenderness and yet God's justice. And what we're hearing in that passage of Scripture is that, yes, God is a just God. He's not going to excuse the guilty. But read your Old Testament carefully. God is always pouring out mercy, always pouring out forgiveness, always pouring out another opportunity to be reconciled with him. And I see that in Joseph's mind and in his heart. From what he can see right now, he can't understand this, he can't explain it. It appears that, you know, whatever's happened to Mary, it wasn't the right thing to do, but he wants to do the right thing the right way. He wants to preserve and protect her, do this as mercifully as he can, but stay obedient to the word of God while he does that. And I really, I really respect that about Joseph. I respect that desire in his life. You know, when I think about the incident that happened to me on the trail when I was running with my dog and how horrible I felt after I had behaved the way I did. And I stood that Sunday and I shared the message and I stood behind that communion table. God spoke so deeply to me. And what God said to me was, you know, Dale, so oftentimes you see yourself as sharing the elements with others. You talk to them about my mercy. You talk to them about my forgiveness. These elements are for you as well. And I just felt and heard God say, I, I love you and I forgive you. Yes, what you said and how you behaved was wrong, but my forgiveness is for you. This meal is for you. Every time you eat this meal, understand, Dale, it is a reminder to you that I love you. My love is steadfast. My forgiveness has been poured out. You can have a new day start. So maybe you've been a bit of a jerk lately. <laughs> maybe you've been unkind in your words and your behavior and your marriage or your family with your kids. Maybe you've been exasperated on edge and you've blown it. Can I just say, rather than beating yourself up, you have a God who loves you. You have a God who wants to forgive you. Let go of your pride. Accept his mercy. Receive his forgiveness. Celebrate that joy. Do the right thing. Do it in the right way. And you won't even have to worry about those things. But when you blow it, there's mercy and grace and forgiveness. Second thing I notice about Joseph is that he unquestionably obeyed the Lord because he trusted in the sovereignty of God. He unquestionably obeyed the Lord because he trusted in the sovereignty of God. You know, if it had been me, I probably would have argued with the angel. <laughs> or maybe I would have done like Gideon in the Old Testament. I would say, okay, uh, give me three more dreams just like this one. Or when I wake up tomorrow, you know, let there be snow on the ground in Israel, right? Or, or let there be whatever. Or I would have said, okay, I believe it, and just dragged my feet because it's just such a challenge. 
But you read the passage of scripture, you'll see that as soon as Joseph has that dream, it says he gets up and takes her as his wife. No questions asked. And then when he's in Bethlehem, right after the baby is born, and uh, the wise men leave later on, Jesus has probably been a year or two old by then, and, he find, and, he, and the angel speaks to him and says, you have to flee to Egypt because Herod is going to come and kill all the children two years of age and under. It says he got up immediately from that dream, I, maybe in the middle of the night, and just packed up his wife and child and headed off to Egypt. No questions asked. And then when he's in Egypt and Herod had died, the angel speaks to him again and says, go back home. He just packs everything up and he goes back home. Never do we hear him questioning God. When God speaks, he believes. And he acts on what God has said. I don't know about you, but that's, that's how I want to live my life. I want to hear God speak, and I just want to obey God. I want to trust God. I don't want to question God when he makes it clear in his word. You know, the Bible tells us that God has spoken to us and told us that we are to love our enemies. We're to love those who hurt us those who judge us, those who mistreat us. So I want to go back to that Mrs. R, who was just my nemesis in my very first ministry. And um, I, man, I wanted to go toe-to-toe with her. Or I just wanted to quit and say, I'm going to go dig ditches someplace. I don't want to be a pastor anymore. But what I heard God say to me, is one of the be- it was such a powerful lesson. I didn't hear an audible voice, but it came through me. It might as well have been audible. I heard God say to me, say nothing. Treat her kindly. I'll deal with her. Now, not in those exact words, but that whole truth came over me. You don't need to deal with her. You tend to this congregation. You be a model and example. I'll handle her. Within two months, she just left the church. And you know what's amazing? Not one person called me or wrote me or asked me what happened to her. It was like like the sun began to shine. It was a blessed subtraction. And there was peace. I'm so glad I listened what the Lord said, because if I hadn't, there could have been, you know, could have torn that little church to pieces. Now, on the other hand, sometimes God speaks to us and says, I need you to deal with a situation. I need you to confront a situation. And we don't want to because we're fearful or we, we don't want the, you know, the consequences of it. And I've had that happen a few times in my life in ministry as well, when I felt God say, you got to sit down and talk to this person. And, and I remember one case in particular where this person was dealing with the whole issue of pornography, and I found out about it, and, and you know, they were a leader in the body, and it's like, oh my goodness, how do I do this? And, and so I sat down with them because it was a family kind of intervention, and I confronted the person, and they got so angry at me. They, uh, they just unleashed on me. And I just, I, just, I just sat there, almost paralyzed, and I just thought, you know what, I'm not going to yell back. I'm not going to turn red. I'm not going to pound my fists. I'm not going to, re- you know, I'm not going to rebuke. I'm just going to let him have it out. And by the time we were done, he was in tears, confessing and asking God for forgiveness and reconciling himself with his, with his family again. That's the power of God. When we listen to him and when we obey him, his wisdom, his word, it really works. 
I'm wondering what situation you might be facing in your life, and your family right now, where honestly you just need to be quiet for a while. Just pray and let God deal with it. Or is there a situation where you need to speak up? You need to do it gently, you need to do it kindly, but you need to say something. Something needs to be said. Let's look at one more way Joseph overcame what could have been unkindness. Joseph always put the needs of others first, no matter how it inconvenienced his life. That's one of the amazing things about this guy. Everybody else came first. Can you think of all the inconveniences for him? I mean, his wife says she's pregnant, right? And, and now he's going to take her as his wife because the angel said it's really, honestly, it, it happened because of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine the gossip in town? Can you imagine the ridicule he faced? Can you imagine what his parents must have thought and said? How her parents must have felt? Can you imagine living that way for those next, you know, six months or whatever? Can you imagine the fear and concern you'd have about your reputation, your business? Can you imagine the inconvenience of, you know, having to leave your business behind and go all the way down to Bethlehem and you have a nine-month pregnant woman with you and she's riding on this donkey and you're walking ahead and you're trying to make sure she gets there safely because the Son of God is in her womb? Talk about overwhelming responsibility. Can you imagine how he felt when he got to Bethlehem and there's no room in the inn? And the Son of God's going to be born in a stable, probably a cave, and there's no bed, so he's going to be laid in a feeding trough? Wow. Talk about having your life inconvenienced. But never once do we ever hear that he was bitter, that he was jealous, that he was angry, that he was sarcastic, that he mumbled, that he murmured, that he said it was too hard, that he was exasperated. They were suspicious. They catastrophized the whole thing. Never once. Because he was the ultimate servant. Do you know, one of the greatest enemies of kindness is pride. And I see no pride in Joseph's life. I see an absence of pride. You know, pride Pride can't stand to be inconvenienced because pride is all about me. Pride is all about me getting my way. Pride is always about me being better. Some of you are struggling with pride right now. I know I struggle with pride. And every time I hear myself complaining because my life's being inconvenienced, I'm reminded of that pride. I don't want, I don't want to live that way because that prevents kindness then. It prevents me from being a real servant. And it reminded me of a story about D.L. Moody, who is like one of the greatest preachers this country ever produced. God used him to lead revivals, tens of thousands of people who came to faith in Christ, who grew in their faith. I mean, God used D.L. Moody, the simple shoe salesman, elevated him to, you know, world renown. Talk about an opportunity for pride, huh? Talk about someone who could feel like, you know, I deserve some attention. I deserve some favors. I deserve some special treatment. Well, the story goes that one day, a group of uh, pastors from Europe had come over to the United States to Northfield, Massachusetts, where Moody then lived. And incidentally, I, I think I've told you before, I got to go 
visited his gravesite and, and his home where he lived. And uh, Marsha and I were the only ones in there, and the lady that opened the door and showed us allowed me to put on his coat. I wore D.L. Moody's coat and paged through the Bible that C.H. Spurgeon's wife gave him. My goodness, I just, I sat there, I prayed, God, please, you know, let the mantle fall on me. All right, it didn't, but that's what my prayer was. I'm wearing this great man suit, man. I just, it was such an awesome privilege. So you've got these guys from Europe that came over. <clears throat> they're, at, uh, they're staying in the dorms at the Bible school that Moody established there in Northfield, Massachusetts. And at night, uh, these men took off their shoes and they put them outside the door because in Europe, uh, what would happen is you put your shoes outside the door and the servants in the, in the household or in the dormitory, wherever it is, will come by and clean and polish the shoes. So while these men are sleeping, Moody is walking down the hallway praying for these men and he sees all those shoes. He's been to Europe. He knows what that's all about. And so uh, he goes to some others and tries to talk them into maybe helping, you know, take care of the shoes, but they're not interested in it. So he gathers all the shoes up himself, takes them to his room, and he begins to clean them and polish them and buff them up. Meantime, while he's doing this, a friend of his came in to check on him and saw him doing that and helped him out with the rest of it and then put them back in front of the doors. Somehow they kept them all in order so everybody had their own shoes when they got up the next, the next morning. And none of us would know that that happened except for that friend later on told that story about Moody. I just think about this great man getting down on his knees and being willing to buff those shoes and to do it with a great attitude. He was willing to be inconvenienced. And that makes me think about Jesus who inconvenienced himself by coming down off or coming out of heaven to this earth and being born in a stable and being put on a cross and buried in a tomb because he loves you and me so very much. Let me close this passage of scripture out of the book of Titus. He says, but when God our Savior revealed his Kindness and love. He saved us. Not because the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and his love, do you know that kindness? Do you know that love? Have you been washed in his kindness? Have you been washed in his love? Then go and do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the kindness example you've given to us in Jesus, who is willing, O oh God, to inconvenience himself to the point of death so we might have life. Father God, Whatever problems we're facing, whatever struggles we have right now, all of a sudden, they pale in comparison to knowing that we are loved by you, accepted by you, forgiven by you. Please, Lord, help us to overcome those inner saboteurs. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll see you next weekend.